So I think you guys are going to be blessed tonight. Um, you have the opportunity. We have uh, a guy here who's a, a guest speaker, but um, but he's he, he's also just part of the body as well. And, and amazing, amazing man. And I've had the opportunity to spend some time with him. Uh, he's really just become a mentor to me. And uh, and he's I'm going to give you a little bit of his background. Um, but I'm, I'm going to miss about 90% of it because it just goes on and on and on. But, uh, uh, but he is, uh, he's been with YWAM. Uh, he's been in the, the Middle East and in Europe. And um, I know I'm missing some of these. But uh, also, he's, uh, he's been at, uh, he was at IHOP for a number of years uh, and the leadership over there as a pastor. Uh, he has done a number of things. He's started churches in Siberia and, uh, and in Europe um, and now, basically, <laughs> the, the list goes on and on. But um, he's, oh, let's see, he was with uh, YWAM, uh, actually with Floyd McClung uh, in Amsterdam, um, and then in some other areas as well, in the leadership teams in different areas across the world uh, with YWAM. And, uh, but I would say he's an apostolic leader uh, to the nations um, and, and just an amazing guy as well. So without further ado, John Peterson. Hi. How are you guys? This is fun for me. I live across the street. <laughs> a, lot of you, a lot of you guys coming from all over the world to come, they leave. I ain't leaving. I'm committed to Castle Rock, to Douglas County. Amen? We're in for a treat from Jesus in this city, I'm telling you. It's a huge setup going on. Have you noticed that? We're getting set up. There's something so liberating about being a son of God. And sons don't stay sons. Well, you're always a son, but you morph into fathering <laughs> and mothering in the spirit. And there's nothing greater. You should all aspire to be a father in the Lord. You know why? You get no credit. You're kind of second-rate citizen. I, don't, I sit in my car and study and read and have a good time and... My, my guys call me, and then I go. I'll fly off somewhere. When I'm home, I'm home. It's kind of cool. A few years ago, the Lord spoke very clearly to me. He said, move to Colorado. I moved up to Georgetown, lived there for five years. I was doing all my international stuff, but nothing locally. I was laying in bed one morning, and I felt like the Lord just said, move down the hill and engage the church. So I moved down the hill. I moved, I moved over to uh, 14th Fairway of the, uh, not on the fairway, but little apartment just across from Plum Creek Park. Plum Creek uh, Golf Course, and I um, set up shop. I have a daughter here with her with her husband and uh, four grandkids, and three more grandkids up in up in Boulder County, and two two grandkids, my son and his wife in Los Angeles. He's a set design artist in Hollywood, and it was amazing because the Lord gave me this instruction: contact nobody, make nothing happen, and just wait. I thought, this is what fathering is. You know, once you release your kids out of your home and they go get married and do their thing, you, you need an invite to come back into their lives. You can't assume what you were before. You can't do that. So first time I ever moved where I didn't have a, a resident team, an office, a, a title, a card, I didn't have any of that stuff where it said, just hang out, sow yourself, 
and just let it start to happen. Again, you know, I was born and raised in Japan. Um, I didn't come to this country until I was 19 years old. Um, so I am half Japanese, and I'm, I'm half, I'm about a quarter American and quarter European. So I've lived 14 years in Europe, about 20 years, 18, 20 years here, and the rest of my life was in Japan. And don't do the math, I'm not sure I got that right. You know, when you get around a little bit, you start picking up the signals from, from the Holy Spirit, don't you? You start getting a feel for what's happening globally. There is a huge shift going on around the world. Um, it's, it's multicolored. It's an incredible shift. But in essence, what the Lord is up to, I believe, and I confer with a lot of my friends, I'm sure you guys have friends and you're hearing this, there is a reformation of church going on so that the church becomes subservient to the kingdom of God. You got a king, you got his, the realm of his rule, his domain, which is what? Everything, everything, the galaxies, the stars, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. So that's, that's the realm of his rule. And then of course, there's the subjects of the kingdom, that's the people of God. The Bible never refers to the church as a place. It's always referred to as people. Now, people gather in places like we're doing tonight, and it's perfectly wonderful, as long as we don't define ourselves by where we go to church. The question is, are we church in the domains that God's called us to? We go back into the Old Testament, kind of set the stage a little bit. Um, I'm, going to, I'm going to do a high flyover, is that okay? And then we'll see if we can't land down in Castle Rock a little bit, down the road. God comes to Moses and he says, here's the deal. I have come down, let's put that scripture up, Exodus chapter three. I have come down, and I'm gonna paraphrase, to bring my people up, you go in and bring them out. Incredible. I have come down to bring, to, to, to get my people, to bring them up towards me. This is, this is a people that were stubborn, they didn't really know him yet, 400 years of them being in Egypt, and all of a sudden God comes and he starts talking to Moses. He says, Moses, I'm coming down and I wanna bring my people up. I want you to go in and get them out. That intersection of God, that place where heaven and earth touch and where earth's assignment is to go into the creation and bring back that which is lost and reconcile it back to the Father. This sets the tone for the book of Exodus. What's the book of Exodus about? Exiting, <laughs> coming out, leave. I'm gonna bring you somewhere else. I'm gonna take you to the land that I've, I've got for you. To understand where we need to go, you gotta understand where we are. I have a conviction that the state of the American church is that it's in captivity. I actually believe that. Now, that's a little unfair because it depends. You're thinking churches, I'm not thinking churches. I'm thinking the family of God, the church, is still in captivity in America. It's too American. You said, what's wrong with that? Well, you have a higher citizenship, first of all. You have a cross that comes before the flag and you've got a king that's much greater than anyone we're gonna choose in the next election. 
The best way to be a really good American is get profoundly attached to your citizenship in heaven and understand what the will of God is for your nation. I made some of you nervous today. You feel it. This isn't the greatest nation on earth. If you idolize your country, you'll be neutralized to bless it for the kingdom. You can love it without idolizing it. I love this nation. God called me as a missionary here. I'm a missionary to my own citizenship. But when I came to Jesus, I got a higher citizenship. That means I get to hear the throne room of God with you as my brothers and sisters to know what his will is for this nation. The reason I say that we're still in captivity is we have churches that won't talk to each other. We have races who are believers who won't fraternize with each other. And we have generations that are ticked off at each other or don't get each other. And we have Christians or believers, let me put it that way, I'll explain the word Christian later. We have believers today who are lobbing bombs at the lost for not being like their Christians. We're lobbing bombs at people because of their sexual orientation or because they don't live a certain way or they think, rule number one, sinners sin. Sinners sin. We're not trying to make Judeo-Christian followers of people, amen? We need the Spirit of the Lord to smack them with the love of God. So what we're doing is accusing people for being profoundly what they were born to be. Why would they want to be moral anyway? What good does morality do anybody? Just pure morality, right? Judeo-Christian Ethic is great for a nation or a society. It's good. It really is good. It's the law of God. It's a good love. Love your neighbors yourself. It's great. It's not enough for a disciple. It's not enough. If you kept all the laws, where would that leave you? It'd leave you without Jesus. What this nation needs is Jesus. We need a fundamental return to the person of Christ, A, in the church, and then B, to see it go from the church to the, to the culture and to the nations. We've been inoculized, inoculated against Jesus because we know so much about him in this country. And God is bringing a wind of change. It's really cool. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. When God created the earth in Genesis, he did a fundamentally amazing thing. Now, when the old guys read it, the ancients, Syrophoenicians, Egyptians, Babylonians, when they read the account of creation, they were more likely to see that a deity was entering his temple on the seventh day than he was to go be wowed about the fact that something was materially created. We're very uh, material-based. We think materially uh, as Westerners, don't we? We think, well, he made the cow on that day, and he made a fish, and birds were flying around, and the sun, the moon, the stars, and all this stuff. Two of the six days of creation, there was nothing created in terms of substance. But there was function created in every, every day. We had the function of, of light, separating light and day. We had night and day. We had time created. We had precipitation created, separating land and sea. And then we had the functionaries. We had the stars in the sky and the moon and the sun and doing their thing, functioning according to his function. On the seventh day, after he'd made creation or made Adam and Eve, he did a very amazing thing. It says that he sat down and he rested. When an ancient heard that, what he would say to you is, 
the deity of the universe just entered his temple and put all of his functions into motion. Okay, get this picture. God, our creator, created earth to be his temple where he would sit on his throne and rule and he created Adam and Eve so the heavenly family created an earthly family to carry out heaven's will and heaven's wishes in an absolute partnership of the uncreated and the created. Wow. It was a family thing. God in heaven created his earthly family and said, be fruitful and multiply. Take care of my temple. It's fascinating because when the Spirit of the Lord came into Adam, all he was was a material creation until Spirit breathed in him. The minute the Spirit of the Lord smacked him, I like that word, smacked. Smacked him. What, what happened to him? Nothing. Until the Spirit inaugurates something, it doesn't function. Jump to the tabernacle. Beautiful artwork was done in this tabernacle. It was just a beautiful piece of art. It was absolutely useless. Until what? Spirit of the Lord comes, inaugurates it, and it begins to function. God is most interested, and not in the fact that something is materially created, but is his creation functioning according to his design. Temple. Solomon, you know, he goes, how can you dwell in a place made with human hands? How is that possible for you? Lord says, let me show you. Comes the Spirit of the Lord. Comes in. Temple priests fall over. Can't stand in the presence of the Lord. What happened? A, a material building, gorgeous building with gold and inlays and, and marble and stuff from all over the world was absolutely fundamentally useless until the Spirit of the Lord came and inaugurated it. That's why we're jumping. Jesus says, you must be born again. Because without it, you're simply a material creation. You have the hint of the image of God that you're made with. But the full measure of Christ is not yet there until a person is inaugurated by the Spirit of God. Brought to life. Wound up and released in the power of God. Amen? Amen. Now, we've got, now we take that same picture and we go to the book of Acts. And what do you see happen? Another temple. Herod's temple. Different temple. Big, beautiful thing. All of the life of Israel circled around this temple in Jerusalem. And God was rude enough to send his Holy Spirit to earth and miss it completely. Here comes the Holy Spirit, Pentecost Day. Takes a left turn and lands on 12 rascals and a few buddies. How rude of him. The rules just changed because the perfect sacrifice was made by Jesus. Amen? He presented his blood to the Father at the at the temple in heaven. And we know that the Father accepted the perfect sacrifice. Why? Because he sent his spirit. Believe me, if that blood sacrifice had not been the right one, spirit never would have come. The spirit is a sign that the Father has accepted the death, the resurrection, and the blood of the Lamb forever and ever and ever. So when he sends his spirit, he's saying, I am returning my earth back to its original intent. It's gonna take some time. How many of you know we don't have our new bodies yet? Right? It's down the road. But man, we're in process. It's happening. 
God is returning creation back to its original intent. I'm on my throne, Isaiah 66. Let's look at that one, Isaiah 661. I love this verse. Isaiah 66, oh, I changed it, didn't I? I'm sorry, my fault. I had the wrong one initially. Isaiah 66, heaven is my throne, earth is my? Isaiah 14, 13, what did Satan say? I will what? Exalt my, my throne above the stars of God. We are competing thrones. But they're not actually equal opposites, are they? Not by a long shot. So you got God in his throne, Earth is his foot still. He, he's seen in the garden with Adam, walking in the cool of the evening. God was intended to walk on this earth. He intended to have fellowship with his creation. By the time we get to Pentecost, we see all of the dream of the fathers beginning to come back to pass again. Because all of the blood of bulls and goats wasn't enough. All of the incantations of priests was not enough. Now we had a high priest. Now we had the perfect blood. Now we had the spirit that sent as a seal of our, of our being in the family of God. And a whole new family is created. From 12 unsuspecting guys, Jesus absolutely defied the religious community and said, the traditions of men are not working the ways of God. I've got to go around it. And I've got to come into, in, into a place where I return very simple people back to my ways. And I'm going to light them on fire and release them like torches into the world. Pretty cool strategy, if you ask me. Pretty amazing of the Lord. One of the great things that God has to do with us is constantly convince us that his blood was enough. When we don't believe that we walk in guilt... We walk, in, um, we walk in all sorts of stuff when we're not convinced that the Spirit of the Lord, Jesus and the Father, have forgiven us. I was talking to a guy on an airplane flying from Delhi to uh, London, and this guy, little cute guy, little Indian dude named, named Winston. Winston says, my family hates me, my sons have destroyed my business, and I'm going back to London to declare bankruptcy, my life is over. Demetrius, could you give me those, that little slip of paper right there? Thank you, bro. So I got to talking with Winston. Turns out Winston had grown up in a Methodist church in downtown Delhi as a little boy. And he told me, he says, I remember the songs. I remember the songs about Jesus. He said, but I cannot get over the guilt of my life. I can't get over the fact that I failed God. And I've not talked to him for over 50 years. I can't get over the fact that my, my marriage is ruined, my business is ruined. I'm 67 years old and I can hardly have any money to retire. So he, he, I, he's a beautiful gentleman. He, he turned in the seat. He held me by the arm and he said, tell me what to do. I said, Okay. I'm not very directive, but I'll tell you what to do. Jesus has been knocking on your door for a long time. But the guilt's been knocking louder, at least in your ears. Let's get it right. He said, okay, what do I need to do? I said, just tell me your story. Let's get right with God. He did. And then as the plane is landing, he whispers in my ear and he says, you need to lay hands on me and commission me back into the work of God. And I said, 
What, like here on the plane? He said, yeah, as soon as everyone stands, I'm going to get in the aisle, and then you're going to lay hands on me, and you're going to commission me, inaugurate me into the purposes of God again. So I did. I said, this is fun. Poor little guy, he's about five foot high. Standing there, he kneels on the ground, and he says, could you please lay hands on me now? So I did. In the name of Jesus, we return old Winston back to you. He repented. He brought, came back to the Lord. And I said, For, most of all, Father, let him see how much his sins are forgiven, that his guilt is removed, that the perfect blood of the covenant's been made for him. That's so cool, fun stuff. Do you like airplane stories? I love airplane stories. Weird and wonderful things happen on airplanes. My wife's a flight attendant, Mindy. And uh, she, between the two of us, we have wild stories. Wild I'll tell you another one in a minute, maybe. How about 2 Corinthians 3.18? You got that one? What was the purpose of all this coming of the Spirit thing? It wasn't just to empower the church. What was the purpose of Adam getting filled and breathed on by the Holy Spirit? What did he get when he was breathed on? He got image. He got the image of the Creator. That's why he can say, we are made in His image. We're made in his image. What was happening when the Spirit of the Lord breathed on that little baby church way back in Acts 2? Image was given. Genetics was transferred. And the old genetic of Adam was reversed. And the new genetic of the last Adam, the second man, was now put into place. What an amazing thing. Do you see why Paul the Apostle was so diligent that, to keep the church on track with the, the image, the thing that God, he said, when I travel and I go and I visit you, I only want to know one thing. I want to know Christ and him crucified. I just want to know if Jesus has introduced you to his cross so that when he does, I know he'll introduce you to his resurrection. That's what I want to know. If you go to pastor's conferences, a lot of times what you'll hear is a lot of discussion about all the great things everybody's doing. I want to know, where's the discussion about the brilliance of the work of Christ, past, present, and future? We've got to be talking about him, about his work. We talk a lot about the presence of the Lord. We love to come into the presence of the Lord. Anyone who doesn't, you're nuts. It's the greatest thing you can ever experience. But we define it so often by our church services or our worship services. Hallelujah, that, we get that too. But we have actually something a whole lot more precious. His presence is with you. He's in you. Christ is in you, the hope of glory. His presence is in you every day. He's inaugurated you. He's laid his spirit on you. He's put a new genetic in you. You are absolutely a new creation. Then the enemy comes along, the one that tries to get his throne above the stars of God, and he whispers at you and he says, you know, that's not entirely true. You just yelled at your wife this morning. You're still not reconciled. You guys are simmering at each other. Here's the beauty of it. It doesn't say that we can't sin. It says we don't have to. It says not when you sin. Sorry, not if you sin, but when you sin, right? That sin doesn't define me anymore. Even if I blow it, I'm, I, and I've, I blow it. It doesn't define me anymore. I am the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. He is all I need. He has nuked me with his presence. He has given me his image. He's made me his son. Oh, sitting in a car or a bed and just let Father tell you, 
You're my son. Big Daddy loves you. Loves you like crazy. Nothing's going to separate you, son. You can blow it. I had one pastor tell me, I was associate pastor back in California when I was in, in my 20s, and I was green, wet behind the ears, learning all sorts of stuff, and I had a guy tell me, you have, he said, I watched you for nine months, and I've come to the conclusion. I was doing stuff. He and I were partnering together. We, were, we had a church of about 700 people. It was growing like crazy, and he says, I've, but I've come to a conclusion. You have no measurable spiritual gifts, and I said, what, like zero? Zilch, nil, nada, nothing? He says, none. You should go back and paint houses for a living. He said, furthermore, you have 21 days to get out of the office, and here's your severance check. I think it was $100. So I said, that's fantastic. Appreciate it. Walked out the door, went home. You know, when you get home, your wife says, hey, honey, how was your day today? (laughs) Fabulous. I got fired. She said, how do you get fired doing the will of God? I said, yeah, well, that's my question too. Now, in the car on the way home, I had a talk with the Lord, and I said, that's it. This is the fourth ministry in four years that I got kicked out of. So I said, there's something profoundly flawed about me or flawed about your calling in my life. So if you don't mind, don't call me again. I'm not available, and I resigned. So I told the Lord, I'm I'm done. That's it. I don't need this abuse. Stupid Christians. Man, I went off. I mean, I was screaming and yelling at God. My wife gets home. She hears this tirade, this blah, regurgitating all over the room. She didn't say a word. She walks up to me. I'm strategically standing in front of the big poofy chair. She takes her finger and pokes me in the chest, and I fall in the chair. She walks around the backside of the chair, lays her hands on my head, and says, Dear Lord, please don't listen to anything you say. <laughs> then she had the audacity to say, Let's go to Calvary Community Church in, in San Jose, California with Gerald Fry and all the guys down there. And we're, it's a charismatic conference. I said, okay, I'm still coming out of my Baptist roots. I, I got nuked by the Holy Spirit at Calvary Chapel in 1971. I mean, nuked. I was sizzling like bacon on the ground. I mean, my, life, I, my depression began to recede. It was great. I mean, I met Jesus and I met the Holy Ghost. For a Baptist kid, that's not bad. When you start sizzling like bacon as the next Baptist, wow, you've, you've entered the realm of the charismaniacs, let me tell you. She says, let's go. Last thing you want to do when you're ticked at God and everybody else is go to a charismatic meeting. So there's a big menu. She chooses a particular topic by some guy named Floyd McClung on unity in the body of Christ. I said, okay, that's the last thing I care about right now. Unity in the body of Christ, bunch of fools. I mean, I was really ticked. So I said, um, I'm just going to go over to this little breakout room. There's some kind of guy. Topic was Jesus the rock. I said, why are we having seminars on Jesus? Who doesn't know that Jesus is the rock? What would possess anybody to have you know, a seminar on this topic is ridiculous. So I sat in there, and I sat in the back, and I crossed my arm, I leaned back in my chair. I was so upset, you guys. And some bozo was standing out the mic stand, you know, adjusting it, and, and I started criticizing the guy. He was an old white dude with a fro. <laughs> old white dudes with froze, okay, whatever. White shoes, white pants, white... Typical Assembly of God, I thought. This is what I was thinking. This is an AG guide, gotta be. And he had a red parrot shirt on. I said, okay, that takes it. 
All of a sudden, the sound technician turned into the speaker. I said, oh, this is going to be great. This B-Afroed, parrot-shirted, white-shoed dude starts talking about Jesus the Rock. And I'm completely criticizing him in my spirit. He looks at me after about 15 minutes. He goes, oh, you were just told that you had no measurable spiritual gifts. You were given 21 days to get out of your office. Furthermore, in the car on the way home, you resigned and told the Lord, don't call you ever again. Resignation denied. <laughs> you are getting a phone call from the throne room of heaven in six days. I said, oh, so they have phones up there, do they? I mean, I was still going, you know. Man, I hit the deck. I couldn't get low enough. I start sucking carpet. Because all I could think was, oh my gosh, he's been watching me. And I missed his plan just because of the pain that I experienced. That pain is the most precious gift that any of us can have. Because it separates us from Adam and puts us in Jesus. It's the thing that makes us wake up to say, no longer I but Christ. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live in the power of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Woo! If that don't make you excited, retire. It's all about image, you guys. Do we have that lovely little scripture? 2 Corinthians 3.18. Remember when God and Moses were doing the deal and, and Moses put a veil over his face? You remember that whole thing? Now, it's referring to that in 2 Corinthians there, and he says, and we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Do you see the ingredients here? You've got, our faces are unveiled. There's nothing to hide. There's no guilt. There's no shame. We've been forgiven. We stand in, in front of the throne room king. This is temple earth and we're his priests. We're his emissaries, ambassadors. And we are being, we love to talk about transformation these days, right? City transformation, transformation of this, that, and the other thing. Fantastic, because God's a transforming God. And what he's doing, though, he's transforming us into his programs, work, image. Huge difference, guys. He's transforming us into the image of Christ with, I love his ever-increasing glory. From glory to glory, we're going, guys. Which comes, and where's it come from? The one that breathed in Adam. The one that breathed in the boys and girls at Pentecost. Inaugurating physical, material creation to, to, to motivate that thing into its per, the purposes of the throne room king. It's an amazing thing that we've been called into. Every one of us have this as our birthright. To know that we're being conformed into his image. Everything Father does is to have us more and more emulate his son. Everything. Transformation is not a goal. Transformation of anything, a person, a family, a city is not a goal. Transformation is the result of the work of God in something. Right? If God comes in you and does something to you, you be transformed, my friend. You'll be transformed. That, that doesn't mean you sit there and say, oh, it's great to be transformed. You're going to get motivated to do the things of God. If we put too much emphasis on the output of transformation, 
will start moving and creating things without the inaugurating presence of the Spirit. There has got to be a time lapse from the time that we get the idea to the time it gets fleshed out because there's work to be done in your spirit. Usually you have to die to that vision. Usually you have to let it go. Usually there's just a boatload of things that God wants to put into you to make you like Jesus so that what you do reflects his image. We got people doing city transformation who are not yet reflecting Jesus himself. And we have a lot that are doing beautiful stuff. And it's coming out of brokenness. And it's coming out of the teachings and trainings of God. They're, they're, they're stripped of ambition other than ambition for God. They have no desire to be seen or heard. They just love the idea of the image of God being transferred into the world around them. And everything they touch. There's an absolutely fabulous text of scriptures that the Lord's given us. Ephesians chapter one, the first part of the book is, or chapter is amazing. You have every spiritual blessing in heavenly places of Christ. Everything you need is in Jesus. Everything. For raising kids, for being a parent, for being a husband and a wife, for dealing with a goofed up boss at work that won't give you a raise. Everything you need for dealing with the neighbor whose dog poops in your yard, whatever it is, you got everything you need. When the money's not there, when the pain is hard, and you've gone through a divorce, you've gone through the death of somebody you love extremely, and all of that pain wells up. Father comes and says, my son has every blessing for you in heavenly places. But I want to give you new eyeballs. I want to give you new redemptive glasses to see this thing and these things from the perspective of the throne room king. It's an eternal king. You got everything you need. This same Christ that provided everything rose to the right hand of the Father. Where is he? At the throne. And what's underneath him? What's on the footstool? You, me, and everything else. Everything else is at our feet. Everything. I remember I was uh, talking with my buddy in Amsterdam. We were doing a lot of work every day. I mean, we, we prayed every day as a community. We worked every day. We were on the streets. The ladies, our, our, our lady, team ladies were able to go into the prostitution areas. We, we boys stayed away from that. But there's a lot going on down in that district with drug addicts. And there was a, a day that my friend John was in a restaurant. He was sitting there just reading his Bible. And a gentleman walks in with two other guys and sits down. And the Lord speaks to John and says, go tell that guy that whatever he's doing, whatever he's doing, I've got something better for him. So John said, oh, okay. John, brand new Christian. He was a criminal, left England to hide from the police, came to Holland to get away, met a YWAM team on the streets, got saved, and was nasty for Jesus. I mean, this guy was dangerous. So he's sitting in there, hearing the voice of God, goes to the guy and says, excuse me, God wants you to know that whatever you're doing, he has something better for you. The guy says, do you know who I am? John says, no. He said, I am the high priest of Satan for the satanic church of Amsterdam. John says, the offer stands. <laughs> you see, the, he understood something even as a young believer. He had been discipled. The, the image of Jesus from somebody had gotten into him, and here's part of the image that he got. 
he got the part that said, he's on the throne and we're his footstool. That means that the, the throne and the footstool are talking to each other to do the will of the Father. And that's what he did. We've had that so many times. I remember being brought into the center of the red light district one night, uh, grabbed one of the beautiful young ladies that worked with us, Herma. I said, Herma, go with me. The, the, one of the pimps had just come and asked if we could go and, and look out after one of his wives. So they have two wives, day wife, night wife. They're not wives, obviously, by legal standards. But they're training one during the day and the other one at night, et cetera, and then they flip it. And he says to me, um, Roby, the pimp, says to me, my wife is going to die if you don't get there right away. I said, why would you call me? Have you called the, have you called the hospital or called the ambulance? No, you need to go. I said, okay. So we had never met her. She had met one of our other workers, but I would never met Yopi. Go upstairs, this dark little place, prostitution going on all around me and all the windows down below. And we go up this dark staircase. We get into this top of the attic is this room, and there's Yopi laying in a bed. And her little boy, Vincent, is in a cardboard box sitting in his fecal matter. He's got body sores, blisters all over him from sitting in it for days. He's emaciated. Little girl was just asleep on the bed and in bad shape. And there's Yopi. She's been comatose. She's been out for almost four days and never, no one ever called the ambulance. Around the room were Buddhas with nooses around their necks. And uh, turns out that Roby's mother was an Indonesian witch and she'd brought healing potions for Yopi. The Buddhas with the noose around the necks meant to be a healing potion, if you can imagine. So we just call in the presence of God and said, Spirit of the Lord, throne room king, do the deal. She sits straight up in bed. She hadn't been away for four days. She sits straight up in bed. She looks at us and she says, oh, hi. I said, hi? Hi. I just had a dream. And this big hand came down and fished me out of the water and I was drowning, about ready to die. I felt my soul leaving my body. And this hand came down. Just now, she said, what happened in this room? I said, well, we called on the Spirit of God. We called on your Father who created you who you don't know yet. We'd like to introduce him to you at some point. And this dear girl, Yopi, jumped out of bed, saw the state of her kids and the rest is history. It took two years for Yopi to come to Jesus. And she came in a marvelous sense. Why is this, guys? Because when we understand that we carry the presence of the throne room king, stuff, stuff starts happening. Now, I, I talk to you about my, my ministry context. What about your ministry context? Every one of you, wherever you're called, that's your ministry. That's your calling. You're called at the workplace. You're called in the neighborhood. This is your calling. Just got done being with the guys at First Covenant in Larkspur. We had a fun Sunday morning. We had, we did the deal on just calling out people's ministries. And we said, how many of you business people or professional people have ever had someone lay hands on you, slap a bunch of oil all over you, and commission you into the work of the kingdom as ministers of the gospel of Jesus. I have guys, business guys, professionals come to me and says, I can't wait to make enough money so I can do what you do someday. I said, what do I do? You're in the ministry. I said, look, we don't need you. Don't join me. 
get activated, get inaugurated by the Spirit of God in your bank where you work. Why would you come to me and want to do my thing and wait till you're 65 to do it for Pete's sake? You're wasting time. So one guy called me and he said, um, you know, it kind of works. He said, what's that? He said, well, I decided to start praying for all the employees in my bank. I said, oh, I bet that was nuclear. What started happening? He said, man, whole spirit is changing my bank. People are coming, happy coming to work. All sorts of stuff started to go on again. Every one of you should have someone slap their, slap their hand and a bunch of oil on your head to commission you, amen, into the ministry of the neighborhood or the ministry of art and media and education. I pray for a little teacher down there. She had cute little things. I think she had third graders or something. And she came up kind of like this. And I said, lift your head, sweetheart. You are a minister of the gospel. You're inaugurated by the Lord. He's called you into the, into the beauty of these little children to radiate and be the image of Christ to them. Spine straight. Say, please, Lord. She said, yes, I really want this. She said, I pray for my kids, but sometimes I get so discouraged by the administration and all this kind of stuff. What a joy when the priesthood comes alive and we begin to understand that we're being called by the Spirit of the Lord to, to touch our city, Castle Rock, Douglas County, this state, the states, and the nations of the earth. Right where you are. Please don't go anywhere unless God calls you to. Do the deal at home. Got everything you need in Jesus. He's at the throne. You're the footstool. That means everything that is his is, under, is, is there with you. You're under his feet. You've got it. And then he goes into a very cool section, chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. He says in Ephesians that God and man had a problem, and God solved it. How did he solve it? By grace you've been saved through faith. Not a works lest any man should boast. God, God solved the problem. He became our Savior. Now there's another problem he had to deal with. Man and man didn't get along. He had a spirit of enmity. That's the spirit of warfare between humans. Rodney King says to us over the, over the TV waves, why can't we just get along? Simple. There's no unifying factor. To have unity, you have to have something that unifies you. No, no, no culture has enough in it to unify people from a variety of ethnic backgrounds or social economic backgrounds. Look at the, the, the battle that's going on between rich and poor right now. Or, or have and have nots, I should say. It's not just rich and poor. We have a whole, whole generation raising up that actually believes that there should be shared wealth. God never said that. God never said that. When he looked at the rich young ruler, what did he say? What's the Bible say? He loved him. You can't change someone you don't love. You don't have any, more, any spiritual capital to change anything that you don't love. If you're here tonight from another church because you fell out, then you'll never change this church. You'll never change your world until you forgive those where you came from. It won't work. You cannot change what you do not love. And when the love of the Father crashes into us, 
And we realize that the enmity between us, male and female, Jew and Gentile, has been broken in Christ. Our shalom has revealed himself. You can look at anybody with redemptive eyeballs and you become dangerous. Because now anybody can be your audience. Now you don't have to conform anybody into anything. Now you can begin to love those that persecute you. Now you can begin to love those that you disagree with. See, if we end up in a political process that, that allows true disciples of Jesus to end up on opposite sides, we're okay. It's okay to be different. It's okay to be a Republican or a Democrat. There's nothing fundamentally wrong with it. It's when you use that distinction to create a division that keeps us from putting him as our shalom. Black and white churches. I sat in a circle of about 10 white pastors, 10 black pastors in a city here in the United States. And one group was trying to get the other group to repent for stuff, and the other group started repenting. And then one guy stopped him and said, we're doing this because you're asking us to. I don't think we have conviction in what you're asking us to repent for. And the one group of guys got up and left the room. They didn't meet the demands of the others. I was in another pastor's retreat. I used to run a lot of pastor's retreats, prayer retreats, bringing pastors together from all these denominations. <clears throat> Fascinating. I'll never forget the day one beautiful Methodist pastor said, I grew up Assemblies of God and I was expected to be Assemblies of God. And I saw what they did to my father and my uncle and they ran him out of the church, ran him out of town. And I swore I'd never be an Assembly of God guy, ever. So we went into the Methodist movement, 50, 60 years old, pastor in the church. And he did an amazing thing. He got in the middle of the chair, in the middle of the room in a chair, and he looked at all the Pentecostal brethren and he said, can you find it in your heart to forgive me for what I've done? I've he said, think of it. My, my dad got hurt, I took on his pain and I'm projecting it onto you. I, I wanna tell you, when he repented and those dear brethren got all over him, like a rash, got on him like a rash, man, I tell you, they were praying, loving on him, hugging him, tears were flowing. Glory hit that room. We had to send people home because they, we couldn't get rid of them. But we had to get out of the retreat center. We just couldn't get rid of people. It was just the Spirit of the Lord is so strong. Blacks and whites were brought together in the Spirit of the Lord. Why? He is our shalom. It's okay to fraternize with people that are certified sinners or people that are absolutely diametrically opposed to all of your beliefs. Hang out with them. You never have to approve of what they do, but you're invited to accept them for who they are. Acceptance and approval, two very different things. Well, you know, those gays. Time out. Same-sex marriage. Just remember, they're created in the image of God. If they don't know Jesus, you don't, you're not going to conform in, into anything until they know Jesus. There's only one ultimate thing God judges people for. What did you do with Jesus? Jesus said it to these blokes on the side of the, of the sea. Come, follow, and I'll make. Interesting. Come, follow, I will make you. Fishers and men. Invite, journey, result. I will make you something. 
When does discipleship start? The minute somebody drops a net to look to see something about Jesus and is willing to take the first step. If we make discipleship about, you got to get saved and then we'll start discipling you. When were the disciples saved? It's kind of a weird term because we're using our terms for that thing back there. Mark chapter 8. So who men say that I am? Well, thou art the Christ, the Son of God. Flesh and blood did not reveal that my spirit, that my Father which is in heaven. So for eight chapters, they were following him. They were just disciples. But they weren't, in the classic sense of the word, they didn't know who he was. He took them because they were interested to begin a journey. If you've ever worked with Muslims or people in the Middle East at all, you realize that some of the, it takes a long journey for them to come into what we would call being saved. It was different terminology. They're, they're, they're learning to be disciples of Christ by following him, reading scriptures, learning that Esau is actually the son of God. Yopi took us two years. She was an early stage disciple. She was not yet a full, fully in. She was not yet being made by the Lord. But there was a point where she came. I think the process starts. I can't say someone is a full-on disciple until they've come to Jesus. Let me put it that way. But I'll tell you what. The discipleship process starts way early on. When you're talking to your neighbor. And they show interest in something. About Jesus. Amen? Amen. You okay with that? Yeah. <clears throat> How many are afraid to kind of share your faith with people? Really? You just get a little fear going? Some of you? Yeah. There's no pressure to do anything that the Spirit of the Lord isn't telling you to do. There's not a rule that says, Christian, non-Christian, saved, unsaved, this person must talk to that person and give them the gospel. No. That gets awful legalistic if we're not careful. And salesmen can do that, but the rest of us can't. It's when the Spirit of the Lord reminds you of the beauty of what he did for you and who he is to you and that he's in you. When the moment comes and you're in that setting, you will speak. He'll grant you unction. Amen? Amen. I, was, I was born with a speech def deficit. Uh, I went all the way through school, all the way through high school, and I was unable to speak in front of people. I stuttered or I didn't talk at all. Um, I would get in speech class, write a speech, try to give it, and nothing would come out of my mouth. Absolutely, completely, 100% blocked. Hives would break out of my skin. i go flush red with blotches all on my face. I graduated from university, three units deficient, speech units, because I was so terrified to actually get into speech class and, and complete my requirements. Mindy and I got married in my last year of university, went and worked with Native American kids at a ranch in New Mexico, Gallup, New Mexico. And the Lord started talking to my wife and said, John, you got to pray for John. He's got to get over this thing. He's got to get free. So she says to me in her ultimate wisdom, just like before, there's a charismatic meeting down in town. You should go to it. God delivered me. It was a Christian, it was a full gospel businessmen's. Let me tell you, those guys are scary. When you're still coming out of your Baptist roots, that is really terrifying stuff. Unbelievable. So I said, so what's the deal? She said, well, they're, they're going to... I said, okay, well, let's go late and let's sit in the back. So I got out of the back and I tried to position myself behind a rather rotund individual. 
so that I didn't have to be seen. And I, cr- I literally, I crouched down. The guy's speaking, he's talking, doing his thing. Great guy. He was a, a Jew, completed Jew, full of Jesus, talking about Jesus in the Old Testament. It was glorious. And uh, he stops just like the other dude did and uh, kind of cranes his neck looking around. He says, young dude in the back in the red shirt hiding behind the lady in front of you. I said, oh man, not again. Stand up, come forward. The minute I got out of my seat, I got up, I started walking down. He's up, he's way out there. He said, open your mouth wide and I will fill it. Now therefore go and I will be with your mouth and teach you what she'll say. Take no thought for in that hour shall be given unto you. Uh, dear God, I hit the deck. Sucking carpet again. It's becoming a habit. How good is God? How good is God? I went back to that camp. Camp director told me that I had to teach a Bible study every night of the week to all the camp counselors. And I said, I'm sorry, I can't. I have, I have speech deficit. I have amazing sermons that I have developed. So I ride my horse. I go out into the mesa and I preach to the cactus. And they are a fantastic audience. They don't talk back. And they don't disagree. A little prickly from here, time to time. He said, no, no, you've got to do it. That's what motivated me to get down to that meeting. I went back, they couldn't shut me up. I have not had a speech deficit since, but I want to tell you, I know at any moment God could take that away from me and be his right, but I stand with the fear of the Lord and say, we, all we have is what he gives us. That's it. His enabling is the only thing we have to go on. That's why every human gift and talent has to go through the cross to come out the other side so it's utterly and totally in his hands. Because what he's doing is, not only has he saved us, not only has he become our shalom, our peacemaker between all the parties that disagree and hate each other, he is taking that material, just like Nehemiah's burned out bricks, and he's building a temple, a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. You and me. We're in a self-help culture. There is no help for self. The greatest help you can do is to cry out for God to come into your heart, into your life, into your situation, into your marriage, into your parent raising. Amen? Amen. Greatest Hebrew word ever. Help. It's got to go through the process of a transfer of life, transfer of energy. Amen? Oh, it's so fun. It's much more fun, even though the pain is brutal. Ephesians 3, 2. See, he's gone through this whole thing, and now he's going to switch to chapter 3. He's just built a case for this temple made up of us, those that have been bought by his blood, saved by grace, those that have understood that Jews and Gentiles are now one in Christ, male and female. Every human relationship starts with equality and value, not authority. If you start church leadership thinking that you have authority over people, you're in deep doo-doo. Authority is given, not taken. And authority comes when we realize that we're equal to equal in value to every person in the room. Amen. I can be talking to the president or I can be talking to a street bum or a prostitute or whoever. And when I look at them, you and I, we get to see them with the eyes of the creator that is they are created equal in value to us. 
Then he establishes the distinctives of every person. We're uniquely different. Hallelujah. I wish my wife wasn't quite so different, but we're different. We're just weirdly different. We have, diff we have gifts differing. We have ideas differing. And God in his wisdom set up authority. Actually, this pattern you'll find if you keep going through Ephesians. We're equal in value. We're, we're different in calling and ministry. And God has established order in his house. And this beautiful text, Ephesians 3, 2, 3. Surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is by the mystery made known to me by revelation. How many of you read the word administration and go, huh? Hmm? Ministration? I hate administration. I was a young pastor. We had 700 hippies coming out to our church. It was called The Barn. And I used to preach in overalls. And uh, big old nasty hippies with robes. And, you know, I mean, it was wild time. They'd come in smoking weed and they'd come in with their, you know, their braided hair. And it was, and their kids were just, some of them were just running around buck naked. It was wild. And um, now I can't remember what I was going to say. <laughs> I still have a speech better. <laughs> Memory lapse, senility. Huh? Administration. So as people would say to me, you know, you, bro, you just call a meeting in the park. We got to get ready for it. I just show up. No, we got to get the food ready. We gotta, you know, we got to, ah. So I left that, that time, five years, and I was convinced that administrators were of the devil. That anyone with any administrative organizational skill it was, you know, working against the move of the spirit. I get to Amsterdam, and Floyd and the guys have just invited Al, Al Rice, is this guy's name. He was a Wycliffe Bible translator that was a major level administrator. I fell in love with the guy. And I thought, oh, God can actually use an administrator. And then I discovered I actually had a whole bunch of administrative and organizational gifts. And I became the operations director for the whole base for five years. That'll teach me a lesson. Start criticizing people's demonized. We're uniquely different. This administration is a little something different. It's the word oikonomos. Oikos is household. Nomos is law or order. So he says, You've heard about the administration or the household order that the fathers, God has given me. And what was the mystery? That Jews and Gentiles, that the household of God was to include all of his creation. Do you see the family theme? God creates a family. He calls the family. The family fell. He restores the family through the inaugurating of his spirit. He births a new family in the faith. Where did the family meet? In homes. For 250 to almost 300 years, the church rarely gathered in a city altogether. Some of it was because they were fairly underground, and other times it was simply because they, the church was house-driven, house-centric. And the elders were household leaders. So when Paul's writing to the elders in a city, he's writing to household leaders. They didn't have centralized churches like we do today. They, they didn't have those until the basilicas came into being in the, third, in the third century. So when the basilicas came, now they started 
actually outlawing love feasts and meeting in homes to study the scriptures. Steadfast in the apostles' doctrine, breaking of bread, fellowship, and prayer. They outlawed it because they wanted to centralize authority in the church. The way God birthed this family was that it would be a multiplicity of families with elders whose whole gift and calling was to equip the saints for the work of ministry in the city. We have to be very careful that we don't put our energies into running churches. Us leaders have some churchy stuff we've got to run, yes. But it will wear you out. I'm watching guys all over the country, in Europe and in Asia, it is, it is pandemic. Church leaders are exhausted because they're running churches. They're running church programs. They're doing this and they're doing, was that the amen of recognition or the? <clears throat> no, it doesn't have to be that hard. It's meant to be hugely a blessing, lots of fun, and you shouldn't lose your marriage over it. Nor start falling into pornography. Or start treating people like they're commodities or things to be used for your vision. God to design the church leadership to come up, have a vision, and then line everyone up like ducks, wind them up and have them get the vision done. Because what happens, if vision precedes relationship, people start getting used. Vision is good, guys. Vision is good. Let me make it clear. Vision has to be subservient to the strength of the love and affection of God's people. And then we hear God together and leaders are there to oversee it. You got to make sure, steer it, make sure it's an amen and a hallelujah. But the vision, I've watched this. I'm sure some of you have, where one leader will stand up and give the vision, and then that's it. Everyone lines up. What happens then is the tasks are delineated, and then the relationships are only as good as their people's ability to keep the tasks going, to keep the vision happening. What happens if that vision is flawed? What if there's someone here who can't ma match up to that demand? Is he going to get loved? We have people leaving churches because they can't fulfill the demands of leaders. We should be the, Paul starts this whole section, verse right before this, which I don't have up here. He said, I'm the least of all the saints. Apostolic authority is not a matter of power. Apostolic authority is delineated in 1 Timothy 12, uh, chapter 1, verse 11 to about 18. God looked the world over for the worst guy he could find. And Paul was that guy. And Paul says, I'm that guy. I'm the chief sinner. I'm the worst guy God could find. And why would he do that? So that Paul, he said that through me, he put me on a pedestal so that the whole world could see the unlimited patience of God. And then we would know if God could get Paul, God could get anybody. That's the, that's the template for leadership. I'm watching this apostolic movement go around the world and it's breaking my heart because so much of it is based on authority and power and not based on humility and brokenness. Paul said, I bear in my body the dying of Jesus that the life of Jesus might be made manifest in the church. It's when his image is crushed into me and broken into me and released and poured into me by his joyful spirit. I have something to give. Paul said, be an imitator of me as I am of Christ. 
not being imitated of me, period, as I am of Christ. God's calling his church to become imitators. This is the definition of discipleship. Disciples is simply an image carrier. That's all he does. He carries the image of the Lord. We do a lot of one-on-one discipleship. I actually think, scripturally, that it's more family to family. We're an individualistic culture, and we tend to do everything as individuals. The scriptural framework, although individuals are very important, right? Five levels of government, personal government, family government, community government, economic government, and civil government. Five levels of government. Every one of them is important, but it starts with the individual. But the discipleship that Jesus modeled for us, what did he go? He went and he got a community. He got a community of 12 rascals, pulled them together, and says to them, come, follow, and I'll make you into my image. And then you'll have, you'll be fishing for others who are going to be made into my image too. So when the church started, where was it? In the family. What was it doing? Imitating the life of Jesus. Telling stories of his life. It was called the the kerygma, the proclamation. And they were having fellowship. Did you know the word fellowship is more than just having things in common? Fellowship is the word for family enterprise. It kind of lifts it to a higher level. So let's go to that next verse. So we had administration, right? Administration, which was the oikonomos, the family order. Two families in scripture, the nuclear family, and the family of families or the church family, right? So when Paul's talking, he's talking to the old men, young men, old women, young women, and the children. But then he also talks, of course, on other occasions to the nuclear family, husband and wife and children. But he's also talking to the masters and slaves. And that was in the context of the house churches. Because a lot of those wealthy people that had homes that they were opening up to all their neighbors had servants in the home. So he's saying to them, make sure you guys love each other that you reflect the image of Christ together. Even though there's an authority structure that the, gov- that the culture gives you, my government does not give that, that structure. Isn't that great? Surely you have heard about the administration. Uh, the next one, nine, what was it? Nine, seven, eight, nine? Yeah. So oh, here's where it is. Although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people. Let's just take a minute. If you aspire to be a leader... It's the greatest thing you'll ever aspire to. really is, other than a father and a husband. And a wife and a mother were leaders. But to aspire to lead in any domain of life, it means you're going to have to lay it down. You've got to let God have everything. When he looked at the rich young ruler, he loved him. And then he said, now lay it all down. And he left sorrowful. And Jesus said, if he'd only understood, if he'd laid it down, I would have given it all back and then some. Now, we're back to the administration thing here. Nine. And to make plain to everyone the administration of his mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God. There's the word administration again. Totally different word. Oikonomos, in in verse two, this word is the word koinonia. The fellowship, the fellowship of the mystery with the, with the people of God.
How many of you like mysteries? How many of you like them and they can't be solved? Not so much. What was the mystery? That Christ has made his family one family of all nations and all are invited back into the throne room into his presence. If we have a temple king and we're a temple people, then everything we do should smell of temple. Every contract you sign, the people you look at. Why is it we go to restaurants and pray for food? Have you ever, I think about some of our traditions, they're goofy. Pray for this omelet with bacon and avocado. Why aren't we praying for the person who served it? What is it about us that wants to pray for omelets when there's a human standing next to us and then we grouse because we have to give them 15 or 20%? Why are we paying more for food than we are for people? Just a pet peeve of mine. Forgive me, I have a few pet peeves. Try it sometime. Pray for the people that serve you. Miraculous things happen. I don't have time for it. I have a story that just... I don't have time for it. <laughs> I'm so tempted to tell you a story, and I can't. I, I, we need to end this, and I just want to land the plane a little bit. I was in Pittsburgh with Ed Silvoso. I worked with him for three years, and he's one of God's great creations. Amazing guy. Uh, was in the Argentine revival and just carries such a heart for the world and the lost. But I remember, I remember being with our team and there was probably 800,000 pastors and leaders in Pittsburgh and the Lord spoke real clear to me and just completely set me, set me on edge and said, the church the way she is cannot reach the city the way she dreams. The church the way she is cannot reach the city the way she dreams. It's, it's been a journey for me to move into an understanding of the reformation of what it's gonna take to transform cities for God. I'm on a journey. I'm not there. Got a long way to go. But I know this much. No city will be transformed until God's people are transformed. And they will transform their own families so that the family of God and the family of families will represent his image into this place. Two pillars of God's erected for all of his work. Acts 1.14, they were steadfast in prayer in one accord. If the image of God is to come, and as it comes, it's because it's supported by a church unified and by a church praying. Whatever we put our hands to do in Douglas County has to be supported with those two things. It's not enough for pastors to be meeting together, which they do beautifully in this city, and I commend them. I think it's fantastic. It's not a matter of meeting. It's a matter of falling in love with each other. It's a matter of championing each other's callings and ministries. There cannot be competition between the churches in the city. Cannot be. God has called us as equals in value, different in calling. We're co-laborers of the grace of God. If we have endeavors, and it's going to be happening in this city more and more, we're already seeing it happen. Mike just met with some of our principals in town. Uh, they're, they're, being, the church is being asked for help with mitigating the whole shit teen suicide issue. On and on it's going to go, you guys. Let me tell you. Those that are in those domains need to be praying, and the church needs to be a praying church. And I please don't mean have prayer meetings in the buildings. 
be the priests that take the presence into the place. We saw every school, every children, every administrator, every principal in Modesto, California prayed for, and God brought a move of the Spirit in the, church, in the school system. Kids were learning to pray for their mates. See, we just pray for the high school. That's great. Get the high schoolers to pray for the high school and pray for a move of God. Get business leaders praying for their businesses. I have a friend that had hired a receptionist who was an intercessor. 700 and 800 employees. Every call that goes in gets touched by someone who's filled with the Spirit of the Lord. Everyone that walks in the door for an appointment gets blessed by the Spirit of God. Every one of you have a domain, and every one of those domains is holy to the Lord. I just want to encourage you to ask the inaugurating Spirit of God to inaugurate your world. We don't have a sacred, secular thing going anymore, guys. Those days are over. What I do is sacred, what you do is secular. I go to my secular job so I can do my spiritual or you know, sacred outreach to Cambodia. No. It's all sacred to the Lord because it's all His. And you need to be commissioned or believe that you're commissioned by the Spirit of God to do it. And when you do it, don't do it alone. Do it with your family. Amen? We do it as the family of God. That means, and I want to commend your house groups, life groups, house churches, to discover what it means for the family of God in that neighborhood to be a dynamic witness to that neighborhood. Walk the streets, pray for, throw block parties, whatever it takes to get people of God loving their neighborhoods for Jesus. Otherwise, we fall into the American trap of up garage door, down garage door, in, out. How many of you believe the Lord's moving in our city and will continue to move in our city? How many of you believe the only way we're going to do it is if we unify and really do love each other from the heart? If you have any wrong against anyone in this city, any, any believer, any church, any church leaders, I drew you, I, I ask you, get it right. Ask the Lord to set up a way to make it right. You can't just force it. There's timing involved in reconciliation. But ask the Lord to bring you back. Let's be a reconciled city. Let's be a city that prays for those that are in governmental authority here. Let's pray for those that we disagree with. Let's pray for the school district and the social services people. I mean, let's pray for them. Send them gifts. Take on the, the, the police officers and the fire people. Pray for them. Bless them and anoint them. When you walk, walk and pray for the people on either side of you. We did this in the city. We've prayed for 180,000 residents three times in three weeks. Every business, every person in the city was prayed for. At the end of the three weeks, we had a prayer fair and two covens of witches came to Christ. The whole time we were there, every traffic accident was eliminated. There wasn't traffic. There was no deaths in the city, no murders, no nothing. The presence of God was so strong. People were coming to the Lord. We had a prayer fair. We had seven things that you could be prayed for. Pray for your business, pray for your job, pray for your family, pray for sickness, pray for this, pray for that. And the whole team was laying hands on people in the, this is a prayed for city. The Catholic Church had a very demonic thing going on through a, through a mysterious kind of a, you know, bleeding of the hands thing of Mary and all that kind of stuff. The Catholic priest gets convicted in the middle of the celebration 
repents and closes the whole thing down and says, we'll never have that again. And came to the other pastors and said, teach me the ways of God more thoroughly. We have yet to see what will happen when we become a praying people. And we understand that the throne room king has anointed us to be the temple people in Gasserac. Amen. tonight, we've talked about praying, we've talked about commissioning, but we haven't done it. And I feel like since John's here, I think it'd be great if we could commission you tonight. Uh, I'd like Jeff to be part of that, Mike. Uh, if we could just lay hands on you and commission you to be image carriers wherever you are, whether it's the workplace, uh, you know, where our schools, your home, your community. I feel it's real important. And I feel like the people that have children probably have to come first because we're running out of time. I've been sitting there for the last half an hour, and this has been on my heart so much. Is that okay with you? I love it. Yeah. I Absolutely. think it's really important. We have oil. Honey, can you get the oil out? I don't know where the oil is. But anyway, uh, is that okay with you, Jeff? And Mike, is that okay with you guys? Yeah. I think it's really important. It's good to talk about it, but how many know it's better to do it? So we want to commission you tonight and to really be everything that God's called you to be. It's a great word that John gave tonight. Now let's put it into practice. And uh, so I know some of you have kids. What time do you have to pick up your kids by? 845. What time? 845. 845. So people with kids watching? 40, 45. Oh, 45. Oh, good. That's you got 15 minutes. No, 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 no. No, no. Kids are probably picking up your kids. Okay. Anyway, we've got a little bit of movement here. So people that have kids, uh, would you come first? And then is the worship team coming back? Yes. Why don't you guys go ahead and play some commissioning? Uh, and, and, uh, and so, so Heavenly Father, we just thank you tonight for the message that came tonight. Now, we want to put that into practice. And so, Father, as, as leaders here, we want to be able to, to anoint, to, to release, and we want the people that have children to come first, and we want to release you to be the image carriers wherever you go, whatever you do, okay? It's not... Whether you're in ministry or not, you're all in ministry. And uh, so we want to do it now, in Jesus' name. Okay. Yay. Beautiful.